Welcome to Think Jewish. And uh, actually, I want to announce that uh, next week I am not going to be here. I'm going to be in New York. I'm asking all of you present listening and all of you that are listening through the recording to please, on Thursday, my brother's going for a serious surgery on this Thursday, so I'm going to New York to be with him, so please do say a prayer on Thursday for Moshe Mayer HaKohen Ben Chana. Again, that's Moshe Mayer HaKohen Ben Chana, and I'd like to dedicate um, this class to a uh, healthy and successful um, open heart surgery and a very quick uh, recovery. Okay, so again, the name is Moshe Meir HaKohen Ben Chana. Also, I want to announce that uh, every single week we have a refreshments and there's a sponsorship. Um, the sponsorship is $18. So if everyone can just try to set up once a month or something like that. And I'd like to thank uh, Chaya Vaktikovskaya, not only for setting it up every week, but she's also has sponsored this week. So thank you very much. So this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion begins with the story of how Jacob is meeting his twin brother, Asaph. Let's get a little bit of background story here of what's going on. So what happened was some 32 years earlier, Asaph had vowed to kill Jacob after Jacob stole the blessing that Isaac, the father Isaac, was going to give Asaph so Jacob stole it, and when Asaph found out, he vowed to kill Jacob. When Rebekah found out about this, she told Jacob, run away. And so it was, Jacob ran away. His destination was to go to his mother's brother, his maternal uncle, who had daughters, and he was to marry from those daughters. On the way, we know, our sages teach us, that he actually made a pit stop in a yeshiva. It was called the yeshiva of Aver, the great-grandson of Noach. And there he learned for 14 years. And then he went to go to his uncle Laban. And he worked seven years to go ahead and marry Rachel. And Laban tricked him. And he ended up marrying Leah. Then he worked another seven years to marry Leah, uh, Rachel, I'm sorry, Rachel. And then he works another seven years to build up his own possessions. Until then, he didn't, he worked for a wife. Now he has two wives and children. He ends up with four wives, actually, and children. And he needs to have his own parnasa. He needs to be able to provide for them. So he works to build up his own livestock, and he was extremely successful. Then... As, Re as Rebecca promised, she sent for him, letting him know that you can come home. Because that was the deal. He should run away until Asav calmed down. It was 32 years later, and she sent for him. Jacob is coming back now. He's returning. Asav gathers together an army, and he's going out to greet him and take revenge. That was going to be... What was happening? Jacob goes ahead and prepares for war. And after he prepares for war, he prays. What we're going to focus on tonight is one specific sentence of that prayer. A very famous sentence 
Katointi mikol hachasodim. He says, and Jacob, the verse says, and Jacob said to God, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, I have been made small. Katonti, from the word katan. Katonti mikol hachasodim. I have been made small by all your kindnesses. Plural. Okay? That's what we're going to focus on that verse. Now, this happened, just to give you a, a little bit of a timeline here. This happened in the year 2206 from creation, Masomenos, which is circa to 1542 BCE. Okay? So you have a timeline. Some 3,308 years later, in the year 5,559 from creation, which is 1798 ACE, 1798, the Alter Rebbe Rabbi Zalman of Liadi again quotes in his prayer as he writes a letter to his Hasidim of how they should react to the miraculous redemption from the Tsar's prison. And we know that famous day is the 19th day of Kislev. And he's writing a letter to his Chassidim how they should react. And again, he begins that epistle, that letter, actually is called Katointi because the opening words is the quote of that exact verse that Jacob says in prayer. So I want to read to you exactly how it's printed in the fourth part of Tanya, a couple of lines of what he writes to Chassidim. Upon his arrival from Petersburg, I have become small from all the kindnesses and from all dot, dot, dot. This means that by every kindness that God bestows upon man, man is to become very humble. For chesed is the right arm, and his right arm embraces me. That's a verse. Which refers to the state of God actually bringing him close to himself, capital H. For more intense, far more intensely than before. And whoever is close to God with ever, with ever exceeding uplifting and elevation must be more humble. So the Alter Rebbe is saying the same thing. He's saying again this concept that when kindness is shined upon you, the reaction should be humbleness. Unlike those who are not behaving with holiness, by them it's the opposite. The more God shines kindness upon them, the more they become arrogant and arrogant. Oh, look, let me just quote to you one of the most arrogant people, exactly what he said. Do you remember what Haman said when the king Ahasuerus asked him in the middle of the night, what should the king do to he who finds favor in his eyes? And the verse tells us exactly what Haman was thinking. Who does the king find favor in his eyes more than I? So the benevolence and kindness that was being shined upon a man like Haman caused the exact opposite of what the holy Jacob and the holy Alter Rebbe is telling us. For from a Jew's perspective, I have been made small by all your great your kindness that you shine upon me. And the Alter Rebbe explains it on a Kabbalistic level because when chesed, kindness, is shining upon you, that means you're being brought closer to God. The closer you stand to God, the more humble you must be. 
Rashi takes it even a step further and says that Jacob actually was concerned because when he was so gifted with kindness from God, he actually felt that maybe he did a sin which left him undeserving. Maybe he used up all his merit and now that he's standing so close to God under a magnifying glass, maybe something he did was considered an infringement upon the holiness and honor of God and therefore he felt Shema Yigram Achet. Maybe the sin caused that I don't deserve any more kindness. So holiness, holiness tells us that when God shines kindness upon us, we need to become more humble. Klippa, the other side, tells us that no, if God is shining kindness upon you, then you have strong foundation on which you become more and more and more arrogant, have a greater sense of entitlement, and that's the difference between the two. And the Al-Tareb is telling Chassidim that regardless of what other people are going to say to you and how they're going to fight with you about this, you need to react as a Jew, as a holy Jew, to the kindness that God just showed us. And how does a Jew react? With humbleness. Okay. That's the opening of tonight's class. Now we're going to zoom in to some of the words that the Alter Rebbe says and also the emphasis in the parasha. What is the word he says? He doesn't say katonti mikola chesed, singular. He says mikola chasadim or the plural, kindnesses. When the Alter Rebbe writes his letter in the epistle, he also writes the double terminology, mikol chesed vechesed. Again, he mentions twice the word chesed. The Rebbe zooms in on this, and the Rebbe says that this is to teach us a very important concept. Number one, when you talk about Kabbalistic, when you talk about two and not one, that means that there's not two of the same. Because if you have two of the same kindness from Kabbalah's perspective, that's all one. So the fact that God protected Jacob, the fact that he gave him food, the fact that he gave him wealth, the fact that he protected him by Laban, the fact that he's protecting him by Esau, the fact that he protected him throughout the whole journey, that is not considered two chesed, two chasadim. From a Kabbalistic perspective, that's all one definition of chesed. So when Kabbalah says plural, when he focuses on the plural, he says the words, Zohar says, is chesed the is chesed. There is a kindness and there is a kindness. And what they actually mean is two absolutely different types of, of kindnesses. Not just in the manifestation of the kindness, but it's different types of kindnesses. More Kabbalistic language. There's two different emanations of chesed, of kindness, and they're completely different. And this is the deeper meaning of when the verse says it plural, I have been made small by all your humbleness, by all your kindnesses. Chasadim, suffix yud mem, plural, masculine. And this is also why the Alter Rebbe says, mikol chesed vechesed. Again, he uses the double terminology. From a kindness and a kindness. So now we need to understand what are the two kindnesses that we're talking about. 
understanding what the two kindnesses that we're talking about will now explain to us the title of tonight's class. The title of tonight's class is Healing the Emotional Wreck. Subtitle, Understanding the Two Human Layers of Emotions, Tohu and Tikkun. So I first want to introduce to you that we see clearly in the verse of Jacob and in the epistle of the Alter Rebbe, the letter, they're both referring to two types of chesed. And two types of chesed we explained in the world of Kabbalah doesn't mean a difference in quantity. That by Kabbalah is not considered two different categories. It's just the growth of one category. But obviously we're talking about two absolutely different qualitative emanations of kindness. Okay? Now, it's not going to be Kabbalah the whole way through. It's going to get very practical. It's going to deal with how we struggle with our emotions. So, but we are going to have to explain some Kabbalistic concepts just to lay down a proper foundation. Okay? So, let's talk about this. There is the early Kabbalists, and when we talk about the early Kabbalists, we're talking about pre-Rab Moshe Cordova, known as the Ramak, and pre-the Arizal, the Ariya Kadosh, Rab Isaac Luria. To give you exact dates, Rab Moshe ben Jacob Cordovero lived in 50, from 1522 to 1570, and Rab Isaac Luria lived from 1534 to 1572. Okay? Now, Pre the Ramak and the Ari, the early Kabbalists, they refer to the first of the seven emotion emanations as Gedola, greatness. The Arizal and the Ramak, they changed the term and they called it Chesed kindness. By the way, in your prayers, what do you say? Lecha Hashem Hagdula. Right? You go through the seven emanations. You don't say Lacha Hashem HaChesed. You say Lacha Hashem HaGdula. So when we talk about the definition, the name, and the definition of the first of the seven emotion emanations, we have an argument. The first Kabbalist called it Gidula, greatness, and the later Kabbalist called it Chesed, kindness. And now we want to understand why. So it explains that they're not arguing. They're talking about two different types of kindnesses. You see where we're going with this. We said that Jacob said chasadim, plural. We said that the Alter Rebbe said is it both chesed. We quoted the Zohar that said there is a chesed and there is a chesed. Now we're seeing clearly. The difference between the early Kabbalists and the later Kabbalists is that they're talking about two different realms. For to understand this, we need to bring in one more concept of Kabbalah, which you people have heard from me before. There is the world of Tohu, and there is the world of Tikkun. If you remember in Genesis, what does it say? Before God created the world, what was there? Tohu Uvahu, chaos. There's a Medrash that says that God created worlds and destroyed it. And uh, Ria Kadosh, Rabbi Isaac Luria says what he means is that he created the world of Tohu, which shattered, as we'll soon see, and then he created the world of Tikkun. Now, 
the ten emanations, the way they are in the world of Tohu, chaos, is very different than the way they are in the world of Tikkun, which is orderliness. Because they're very different, therefore, when we talk about the first emotion emanation of the world of Tohu, chaos, we call it Gidullah, greatness. When we talk about that same emanation, but the way it is in the world of Tikkun, orderliness, we call it Chesed, kindness. My job is here to make everything understandable and practical. So now we need to understand why. Why over there is it called greatness and over here is it called kindness? In the world of Toho, chaos, it's called Gidullah, greatness, and in the world of Tikkun and orderliness in which we exist, it's called Chesed. So it's explained. And it explained as follows. In the world of Tohu Chaos, the ten emanations are called Nikudot, Dats. In the world of Tikkun, the ten emanations are called Partsufim, Faces. Again, why? And here's where we're going to get to the difference between the two types of kindness. In the world of Tohu, there exists the infinite, omnipotent essence of the light, the infinite light of every emanation. It is pure. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is, for example, in the emanation of kindness, there is only the pure, infinite, omnipotent light of kindness which has zero tolerance or acceptance of its counter antithetical antithetical emanation emotion that's why it's called a dot it's just a pure concentrated essence in the world of tikkun you guys have been enough to this class to know that in the world of tikkun it's a compilation Every single mida, every single emanation is not the infinite, omnipotent light. Rather, it's the finite, contracted ray of the light. Now, because of that, what happens? Because of that kindness, because it's been weakened, it also has humbleness. Because it has humbleness, it makes space within itself and accepts its counter-antithetical emotion. Now let's just say it in simple words which you already know and heard of. Because when you count the Omer, you always mention it. In the simple emanation of kindness, in the world of tikkun, orderliness, you have kindness of kindness, strictness of kindness, compassion of kindness, and so on. The second week of the Sphere to Omer, we talk about what? We talk about kindness of strictness, strictness of strictness, compassion of strictness. This compilation allows it not to be a tiny dot of pure, infinite, omnipotent, but rather it becomes a complete face. It becomes a complete concept 
the emanation of chesed now has within itself all seven. Why does that happen? For two facts that make up one reason. Because in the world of chaos there's the infinite light, there's the omnipotent light of the emanation of the emotion, therefore it's completely omnipotently itself. Therefore it cannot allow for anything but itself. You can't take the essence, the infinite omnipotent kindness and ask it to consummate itself with the infinite omnipotent strictness. So because it has that infinite omnipotent, it lacks the humbleness. Not so in the world of Tikkun, because in the world of Tikkun, the ray of light that shines into the emanations is only a contracted finite light. Therefore, it has humbleness. Therefore, it allows for a compilation. What is the amazing outcome of this fact? The amazing outcome of this fact is that the finite ray of the world of orderliness ends up being stronger than the infinite omnipotent light of the world of Tohu. How do you figure people? Very simple. Because the world of Tohu was so intense and so infinite and so omnipotent, therefore there was a shattering of the vessels. So therefore the world of Tohu shattered. Those sparks fell down into our world. So at the end of the day, Tohu shattered, Tikkun didn't shatter. Who's stronger? Let's take it to the next step. Not only didn't Tikkun shatter, but Tikkun is the only hope for the resurrection and restructuring of the world of Tohu. It should be in a healthy, sustainable fashion. So ultimately speaking, the finite contracted light of Tikkun, that humbleness gives it a greater strength than the omnipotent infinite power of the world of Tohu. Okay, you think we got enough Kabbalah for here tonight? Let's get practical. Let's talk about Tohu and Tikkun and human emotions, okay? The greatest artist of all arts throughout the history of mankind have always expressed these two types of emotions. Amongst our writers, musicians, and artists, right? We find the artist who lived in power, poverty and deep suffering, and we find the artist who lived comfortably. Let's just put it out there. Classic example. Let's talk about Rembrandt versus Picasso. The prior lived the end of his life in great suffering, tragedy, and Picasso lived his life very sustainable, very comfortable. Okay? Now, what is the gift of an artist? The gift of an artist, even though many of them were extremely geniuses, however, the true gift of an artist is to be able to feel his or her emotion and transmit his or her emotion. That's what art does. You're moved by music emotionally. You're moved by literature emotionally. You're moved by art emotionally. So the power of an artist 
is the embodiment and the transmission of emotions. Now amongst the artists which are gifted and talented to be able to have a higher sensitivity to these emotions, their own emotions, and to be able to transmit it, you're going to have the exact two layers, the exact two different kinds of emotions that we spoke about. You're going to have the one who is what I'm calling the emotional wreck, Rembrandt. You have the other one who is able to have the orderliness. He's not stuck in the deep intensity of the tohu transmission, the essence dot, but rather he's able to absorb it and transmit it as a face, not as a dot. He is not an emotional wreck. She is not an emotional wreck. The difference between composers. Now here is a very interesting kicker. For most of us, we know that it was the emotional wrecks who lived in the throes of their emotions of chaos, their infinite, omnipotent emotion, they somehow gave us a far greater gift of art than the ones who were very orderly. Let me give you a classical example. Let's talk about two amazing composers, Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. Let's talk about the difference between those two. So Amadeus was actually, he recognized that the difference between his compositions, his musical compositions, and Amadeus' musical compositions is, the way he referred to them, that Amadeus, his music, was divine. It was God's music. While he saw his own music, I'm sorry, Yes, he saw his own music as the music of mankind. And that's why Solitary had this unbelievable war with God. How could you have given your godly gift of music far beyond the Tikkun world, far beyond the orderliness of mankind? This is essence divine music. How did you give it to such an unrefined person and not to me. So what we're seeing here is, on a practical level, when we talk about Tohu and Tikkun, on a practical level, we see that in the worlds of artists, who what an artist is defined by his sensitivity to emotions, how far he can reach within him or herself and touch those emotions, and how he can transmit those emotions, we find clearly that there's two types. There's the emotional wreck from tohu, chaos, and then there is what I'm going to call for tonight the nonchalant of the orderliness. Let's step away from artists for a moment. Let's talk about simple people like you and I, mainstream human race. Just think for a moment. Many of us know such a person or we are that person. Let's just talk about the individual who is completely in love with someone from the opposite gender. 
right? You have many movies like this, but it's real stories. And that person is paralyzed by the unbelievable intensity of his or her emotion. Cannot get him or herself to actually approach the loved one and ask them out on a date. And as he's standing there in the cafeteria, completely paralyzed by this emotional wreck, he simply watches in absolute horror how a nonchalant guy just walks over to the girl, asks her out on a date, they start dating, they develop a relationship, they get married. And this guy is just like, he's, he's gone. This guy is living four decades later. He is still, metaphorically speaking, metaphysically speaking, he is still stuck in that cafeteria trying to get out of his paralysis of a tohu experience of emotion of love, chaotic, and he's still standing there completely devastated by that knife that was thrust into his heart as he watched someone else come along with far less feelings for this girl. Just asked her out on a date, ended up having a relationship, they're married, they're living their life together, having children, and it's all beautiful. You follow the difference? We're not just talking about Amadeus or Solitary. We're not just talking about Rembrandt or Picasso. We're talking about you and I. We went through this. We've watched other people go through this. So this concept of these emotions exists within us, not just the extraordinarily gifted. I want to throw something in here. What we all know is that that loved girl who ended up marrying the nonchalant guy and went on to build a relationship and get married, they will never experience the intensity and the extraordinary relationship of love that she could have experienced with that tohu guy, with that emotional wreck guy who couldn't get himself to ask her out. He was stuck in the own paralysis of the intensity of the omnipotence of his emotion. So what I want to lay forth clearly on the table is the plus and minus of each side. In the emotional wreck, chaotic, you're stuck there. You're paralyzed. You can never ask her out on a date. You're not getting anywhere. But on the other hand, the nonchalant who has no problem being in control, orderliness of emotions, never falling too in love, will be able to ask the girl out, will end up marrying the girl, but will never experience that extraordinary, chaotic, omnipotent, infinite feeling of a relationship. So when the Zohar talks about is chesed ve is chesed, there's the chesed, there's the emotional wreck, there's the infinite omnipotent light of the world of tohu chaos, and then there's the chesed of the finite ray, the orderliness, the tikkun. Don't think of spiritual worlds. I don't want you to go into Star Wars. We're talking about you and I. We're talking about people that we know. That's what they're talking about. Is chesed the is chesed. Now, I want to take it to a step further. If you were to ask 
this emotional wreck. Tell me, Rembrandt, have you had enough of your suffering? Would you like to give away your power of sensitivity of emotions? Would you like to give away because it just hurts too much? The answer will be either no. And if the answer is yes, one of two things will happen. They will be back in two weeks begging to change their mind or they will be committing suicide. Why? Because for a person who has the capacity of the infinite, omnipotent, chaotic emotion, to them, the finite ray of orderliness is boring, it is lifeless, and ultimately speaking, it's worse than death. And that's why we watch these people just going back and we just think to ourselves, oh my God, the rule of Einstein, the definition of insanity, trying the same thing, looking for different results. Why are you trying the same thing? And the answer is because they have no choice. Rather live in pain than die in lifelessness. So understand it works both ways. These two emotions that we're learning about in Kabbalah, the tohu, the tikkun. Tikkun doesn't tolerate tohu because you're just standing in paralysis. You're not going after your dreams because your dreams are too intense. You're not going after your love because you're paralyzed by it. Well, on the other hand, the chaotic, infinite, omnipotent emotions of tohu they look at the people of Tikkun and say, I'd rather be dead. That's what we're experiencing here. And now the issue for tonight is how, how do we heal the emotional wreck of Tohu? And how do we give extraordinary moments to the people of Tikkun? It's a two-way street. How do we do that? So the first thing we need to understand before we can even introduce the answer to tonight's class, tonight's search, we need to understand that just like there is the tohu which is devastating in the world of Tikkun, just like there is that devastation and the suffering and the paralysis of the infinite omnipotent emotion in the world of orderliness, so too there is a beautiful experience of tohu, an expression of tohu, of chaos in this world. And just like we said that tohu won't tolerate the lifelessness of the finite ray of tikkun, so too there is that tikkun which is not only tolerated, but actually accepted and respected. So now what you're hearing from me is that the two became four. There is the tohu, which can only express itself in a devastating manner when we live in this world of tikkun, the shattering, the paralysis, the frustration of living your entire life with a wannabe because you know deep down you can but you won't settle for anything but the chaotic intensity. So you're just frustrated and suffering all your life. Everything you do disgusts you. 
because it isn't what it really could be. And then there's the tohu, which is beautiful. There is the tikkun, which is so lifeless, so boring. Please kill me now. But then there's the tikkun, which is actually embraced, respected, and loved by the chaos. Now the question is, what is the secret? What decides whether tikkun in Toho is shunned and lifeless and rejected as dead? And what decides if Toho's experience in tikkun is devastating or divine? So there's a devastating Tohu, which we spoke a lot about, but there's also a divine Tohu, divine chaos. There is a lifeless Tikkun, but there's also a very respective and yearned for Tikkun. There's some secret which will decide how your experience of Tohu is. There is some secret which will decide what your experience of Tikkun is. It could either be devastating or extraordinary. It can either be lifeless or it can be constructive. How do we decide which way to go with whatever emotion you're experiencing? You guys are with me? So far so good? So now let's introduce something. I'm going to do it again. We're going to get Kabbalistic literally for 60 seconds and then we're going to come back. I spoke to you, let's just wrap it up. I spoke to you about the difference between Toho and Tikkun. There's two types of kindnesses. We spoke about the infinite, omnipotent emotion of Toho, which could be devastating, but it can also be divine. We spoke about the contracted, infinite ray of light, which is in Tikkun, orderliness, orderliness, but could be either lifeless or could be beautiful. Right? So we have those two layers of lights. The Tohu definition of light, infinite, omnipotent, and we have the Tikkun definition of light, which is contracted and finite, it's a ray. Now let me introduce to you the essence source. There is the essence source of both lights. It's one and the same essence source which gives forth both lights. If Tohu is a light and Tikkun is a light, where does this light come from? Where's the bulb? Where's the candle? Where's the sun? That is the essence source of both lights. The one and same essence source. Now from this essence source, because both shine equally, they can crisscross. Okay? So all of a sudden, Tohu doesn't have to be chaotic. It can fit. Chaos can fit beautifully into orderliness. Orderliness doesn't have to be lifeless. It can be the perfect conduit for an extraordinary moment. Now the question, by the way, the same thing I want to talk about at the human level. The same thing happens in the human level, right? We have the artist. We have the chaotic artist. But the bottom line is that this chaotic artist or this chaotic writer or this chaotic musician has successfully completed numerous amounts of paintings, has successfully published books, has successfully composed much music. That's orderliness. Chaotic can never finish anything. So the fact that these chaotic people were able to finish and produce tells me that somewhere within them 
There's also the concept of tikkun. Now let's talk about the tikkun person. The tikkun person knows very well what it means to be in an experience of chaos. For example, if God forbid this chaotic, per this tikkun, this orderly, well-behaved, proper English person loses, God forbid, his or her mother, they're going to experience not an orderly, oh, it is, it's okay. They're going to be in absolute chaos. So much so that this orderly person who always, blah, sorry, this orderly person with the oratory skills who always expresses himself so eloquently cannot give a eulogy by his mother's funeral. He is just completely lost in the intensity of chaos. So it isn't exclusive. It isn't that the chaotic people can only be chaotic and that the orderly people can only be orderly. Within every human being, you have both the tohu experience and you have the tikkun experience. Obviously, the question is the ratio, the dominance. So now that you know that the essence allows for crisscrossing, and even the chaotic, infinite, omnipotent power of sensitivity to emotions can actually finish, publish a book. And we know that the orderly person can end up completely meltdown, cannot even put together words when he's dying to express something. That was a bad pun of words, dying. But when he wants to give a living eulogy for his mother. So the question is, how do you introduce this essence source which will allow Rembrandt to live a normal, comfortable life without having to dumb down the intensity of his art? How do you get an Amadeus to produce music at the level that he did without living the chaotic life that he lived which ended up in an unmarked public grave? How do you get a solitary to be able to be so organized and yet lose himself in a composition to be able to experience the extraordinaire? The essence source can do that. But how do we introduce the essence source? And the answer is I want to go back to where we started from. Jacob's words were, I have been made small by the kindness. What was the words of the Alter Rebbe? The Alter Rebbe says that the reaction that has to be when you have closeness and kindness is what? Humbleness. The exact ingredient which allows for you not to get stuck in any side of an emotion to the point of devastation or lifelessness is humbleness. That is the only ingredient. Now again, we can talk Kabbalistically, but I want to talk practically. Let's talk on the practical level, okay? And here, understand, my friends, it isn't the intensity of the and depths of the chaos which is unhealthy, nor is it the structure of orderliness which is lifeless. That's not the problem. The problem is not the intensity of chaos and not the structure of orderliness. What is the problem? 
I'll tell you what the problem is. It is the egocentrism of either of them which makes each of them devastating or lifeless. I want to repeat this again. It isn't the intensity and depths of the chaos which is unhealthy, nor is it the structure of orderliness which is lifeless. It is the egocentrism of either of them which makes each of them devastating or lifeless. What's going on here? Egocentrism is the blockage. It's what keeps me stuck in my experience of the emotion. Remember I told you that if you asked Rembrandt if he would give up the suffering, but with it give up his power of chaotic emotions, and the answer is absolutely not? Why so? Why would it be so? And the answer is as follows. When the artist or the individual is driven by his or her own feelings in their emotional experience, then they are stuck in the unhealthiness of the experience. I want to say that again. Step two, when the artist or the individual is driven by his or her own feeling in the emotion, emotional experience, then they are stuck in the unhealthiness of the experience. What does humbleness do for a man like Rembrandt? What does humbleness do for a simple artist who wants to experience the extraordinaire? I'll tell you what it does. Step three. The healthiness of any God-given gift is the humbleness to focus on the purpose of this God-given gift, which is the accomplishment of the gift for the world, for the other, for God, rather than to drown in our own overwhelming experience of the gift. I want to read that again. The three things that I'm reading again are extremely important of great magnitude of importance. The healthiness of any God-given gift is the humbleness to focus on the purpose, which is the accomplishment of the gift for the world, for the other, for God, rather than just to drown in our own overwhelming experience of the gift. We so enjoy the intense, even though it hurts, but we enjoy that unbelievable drowning in the intensity of the overwhelming chaotic emotion. And when we do that, we get stuck in the unhealthiness of the emotion. But what happens if when I'm drowning in the unbelievable, wow, wow, and all of a sudden I stop and I ask myself, why am I having this experience? Why do I have this gift of sensitivity? It isn't for me to keep locked in my box and die within it. Just like Amadeus died when he was writing his final composition for his funeral. That isn't why he was given the great gift. The reason why he was given the great gift is to make a difference in the world. To help the other. To serve God. And when you have that humbleness, you can shift from the devastation of chaos into the extraordinary structured experience of chaos. When the person is afraid, he must remain in his structured orderliness because that's where I become comfortable. I get very bent out of shape when you change my daily structure. Not me. I'm more a chaotic person. But I'm just sharing this. 
then he's stuck there. He's stuck in his feeling of comfortability. I like when everything is in place. I am in total control of my feelings. I never fall so in love that I'm acting silly. I think those people are stupid and I've never done that. Right? But what happens when he asks himself, what's the purpose of orderliness? What's the purpose of having structured emotions? And when the answer is that it's not about my feeling comfortable and in control, it's about sharing it with the world. It's stepping out of myself. It's sharing it with the others. Serving God. At that point, even the orderly tikkun can open himself up to extraordinary moments in his orderly life. There are three things I repeated twice, and they are of paramount importance. So I'm going to line them up for you, and then we're going to close this up. Neither the intensity or the nonchalant emotions in themselves are either good or bad. They just are. Different people experience the different emotions. Some are open predominantly to chaos of tohu, and some are open in a predisposition predominantly to the orderliness of tikkun. Neither is good or bad. It is the egocentric drive of wallowing and drowning in our personal experience of the intensity or nonchalant emotions that is devastating. When it's all about me, I just want to be in this chaotic, overwhelming, intense, painful experience. It's just unbelievable. I wouldn't give it away for anything. Or the other person, no thank you. I have to work according to my organized schedule. There is no spontaneity. It messes everything up. That egocentrism that's about me and my experience of the feeling, that's the problem. What's the cure? The healthiness of both tohu and tikkun emotions is when we step out of our box and focus on the purpose of this gift for the world, for others and for God. Now let's do the closing. In closing, what this mystical teaching of the Rebbe upon the verse of I have become small from all the kindnesses and upon the secret spiritual worlds of tohu chaos and tikkun orderliness is that the only way to keep ourselves emotionally healthy is through being humble and being willing to step out of our experience of the emotion. Rather, we focus on sharing it with the world. This is how the chaos extraordinaire becomes a healthy and sustainable pillar of divinity for the world. This is how the orderly can allow himself or herself to have extraordinary divine moments in their lives. And that's it for tonight. Thank you.